Welcome to You Wear It Well. Hi, I'm your host, Jeff Heiserman, physical therapist and founder and CEO of Spectrum Ergonomics and Occupational Health Services. We're at the intersection of fashion and technology, otherwise known as wearables. We look at the people, products, and research that make up this exciting world of wearables. Are you a fashion designer, electrical engineer, or someone with the dream of designing a wearable? Apply for membership to my LinkedIn group page, Biotech Fashion, and join in the discussion. Are you a startup, wearable company? Don't know where quite to go from here? Well, you have the questions and Spectrum Ergonomics has the answers. Go to our company website at www.spectrumergonomics.com and click on the link wearables. There you'll find a wide variety of services and other contractors that we work with to help make your product become a reality. We're here to help you through the process of iteration to packaging and beyond. I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of You Wear It Well. And my very special guest on the show today is Stephen Lynn. And I'm going to let Stephen tell you about his interesting academics. Uh, he's going to the University of Sydney. Um, he's kind of an undergraduate and kind of a graduate. But Stephen, it's your show. So you go ahead and, and uh, set it up for our audience here. Sure. Thanks, Jeff. Um, so, hi, I'm Stephen. Um, I'm actually enrolled in a double degree, so in information technology and law. Uh, I finished the information technology part of my degree with honours uh, at the end of 2020, and I'm currently in my final year of the Bachelor of Laws. So, yeah, quite a um, unique background, I guess you could say, like Jeff introduced. You can see where he has honors, graduated with honors, because the product, or, or I shouldn't say it's not a product yet, but it will be a product. His, uh, the invention that he spearheaded with his team at the University of Sydney, um, I think any professor would give somebody honors just for that. So Stephen, tell us a little bit about the, the background. What, what prompted you and your team to want to do this particular device? Uh, I, th it's, I think it's fascinating. And but what, what was the whole impetus behind it? Um, well, I guess for me personally, um, when I started trying to look for honest supervisors, I remembered that when I took uh, a course in human-computer interaction, and Anusha Vithana, um was my lecturer at that stage, and I remember him introducing a couple of uh, wearable sensors that he had worked on in the past, things like multi-touch skin sensors, 
And I thought those were all really cool because it seemed like something out of a sci-fi movie. And I really wanted to be able to work with some of those cutting edge technologies um, as my as part of my honors project. So I approached Anusha and um, talked to him about it. And he said he'd be happy to take me on. And he told me about this idea that he had of a wearable bracelet that would be able to detect finger gestures. And the impetus behind that, I guess, was that people with cerebral palsy and and also other disabilities that affect your hand-eye coordination, affect your motor, um, motor muscles, um, they often find it difficult to control uh, computers because they don't have that fine motor control that the rest of us might take for granted. Um, and Anusha also introduced me to Gopi, um, who's one of his colleagues in Sri Lanka, and he runs this charitable foundation for people with cerebral palsy. And Gopi shared his story of his son who has cerebral palsy and how he can't um, play the video games that he enjoys, like racing games, because he isn't able to control um, the vehicle with the um, involuntary movements that he tends to experience. And I thought, personally, I quite enjoy playing racing games as well. I thought that was uh, quite a strong motivation that if we could develop some kind of device that could help people to um, play games and do the things that we take for granted, then this would be something really fascinating to work on. A very noble pursuit, uh, may I add with that. Um, I can also see this particular device working for people with rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, who, or, or even people with sensory disturbances in their fingers, they might not be able to even feel a keyboard or to be able to feel a joystick. So um, your idea certainly will have, has a very broad market in, in the future with that. So I, I, from just from my mind, when I first read the article about that, I thought there's so many applications for this. This is fantastic. But I, I think that the whole idea of you taking a look at, hey, these are things most of us take for granted. We just do. What about those of us that have trouble for whatever reason, to be able to do that. And so you kind of step outside of your own world and say, well, what can I do to help someone else's world? So that's why I said it's such a noble cause to do that. When you when you sat down to do this, I mean, obviously this was not something you did in a week, but when you first saw these sensors and, and found out about this young man in Sri Lanka who it would love to play these racing games like you, what was some of the first things that crossed your mind on what do I need to do in order to accomplish this? Well, I think the first thing that came to my mind was that we need to make sure that this technology is accessible and easy to use. So a lot of the wearable devices in the market these days, they can be quite expensive to purchase for one and also quite difficult to set up. And they're often not really tailored to the individual. They might be designed on, on sort of like a one size fits all basis. So that really affects the quality and the accuracy of sensing. Everyone who uses these devices, they have different characteristics and that will really affect how the sensor uh, adapts to them. So we thought that we need to develop a device that can be customized to each individual. Um, and that's sort of what led us to the idea of 3D printing, because if we're using off the shelf parts, that really makes it difficult to customize and personalize things. Whereas if we're designing and 3D printing it ourselves, we really open the door to allowing for really personalized um, devices to suit the individual. Excellent point. I think more and more people are hearing about 3D printing and uh, some of the, the applications that it's being used for now. But 
I think your point is something that bears repeating is that we're talking customizable for that particular individual. Now, when you talk about 3D printing, I'm assuming that you're doing 3D scanning, like the, you would scan the individual's wrist and then you could get a, you can get it sized so that it fits in, in the, the bottom of the wrist in what we would call the carpal tunnel area. So is that pretty much what you do is that you're scanning, you can scan the individual's body part, the wrist, and then there's your customization comes in there. Um, we're actually not doing scanning at this stage, although that would definitely be a potential um, area that we would look at because at the moment we're we're taking measurements of the wrist, we're measuring the circumference, and that's basically what we use to determine how far apart the um, individual sensors, the individual models in the bracelet have to be spaced apart. Um, but scanning, um, we're currently not doing that, but that would definitely allow us to get a greater um, sense of how this individual differs to others and how can we tailor our printed materials to fit them or some of the biggest challenges that you and the team have faced up to this point to where you to getting this working prototype well i think the first challenge we faced was um we thought that springs would be a really good um, way to help us to detect these small movements in the carpal tunnel um but what we found was that getting off the shelf springs of course would not be very feasible because for one it's hard to get very customized springs and also they tend to be made of metal and that can really cause injury if the wires come loose or something. Um, so we thought that when we want to 3D print a spring, that's something that really hasn't been done to a huge degree um, in the past. There has been papers where people have successfully 3D printed springs, but those tended to be at a larger scale and using traditional 3D printers. Um, those printers use fused deposition modeling or FDM, and that's where the filament is basically layered on top of each other to form the 3D structures. Um, we started off with that technique, but we found that it was very hard to make springs that were small enough to fit in a wearable device. And the springs that we produced, they ended up being quite stiff because there's a lot of support material that's needed um, in these printers. And when you cut it off, it leaves a bit of residue and the layer thickness was just too high for us to get working springs. Um, so we uh, attempted to solve this challenge by using an alternative type of 3D printer, um, which uses stereolithography or SLA. Um, so that was the Formlabs printer. And that technique uses a laser to harden resin onto a build plate, and that allows it to get much higher resolution. So we found that that did allow us to print springs that were really small and were still able to preserve those spring properties so that they could detect small movements in the carpal tunnel. Um, I guess the second most challenging uh, part that we found when we were designing this device um, also arose regarding springs uh, because traditional springs are cylindrical in shape and that means that when you put them on the skin they tend to buckle side to side because they're too tall compared to their width um, but we couldn't just reduce the height because that would reduce the sensitivity and reduce the range of movement that we could detect um, so our approach to solving that was to use conical shaped springs so springs that had a wider base and tapered up towards the top, and that allowed it to be stable while still uh, being able to detect those tiny movements. Very, very good. Um, that's pretty fascinating. If I stop and think about some of the bones of the wrist are like that. So you're, you're kind of, uh, there's some anatomical modeling that go on with that. So I think that's that's fascinating when you talk about the, the conical shape. Um, and how it relates to some of the actual, the carpal or wrist bones in, in that vicinity as well. I think some of the listeners are probably 
when they talk about well, carpal tunnel, well, isn't that a syndrome that people get and their hand falls asleep and it hurts? Um, explain explain to the listeners what you're actually measuring in the carpal tunnel. What are you? What are these sensors picking up in the carpal tunnel? Because people just think of it as a nerve, but we we know that there's far more than that. So when you took a look at okay, if we're gonna if we're gonna measure, what are we gonna measure, and how are we gonna keep other noises and such out of what we're trying to measure so how did you what do you first of all what are you doing with as far as measuring what are you looking at in the carpal tunnel that's a great question because i don't think i actually explained what the springs are for um so yeah i'll talk a little bit about how how the carpal tunnel works so basically um there's these tendons that travel through the carpal tunnel they're connected to your fingers so whenever you move your fingers, you can see that your wrist, um, little bits of your wrist kind of go up and down in accordance with the finger movements. And that's what we're trying to detect, basically. So depending on which finger you move, you'll notice that different parts of the wrist um, will be moving as well because there's different um, tendons relating to each finger. Um, so the way our device tries to detect that is we place a magnet um, on one end of the spring and on the other end of the spring, there is a whole effect sensor, which basically detects the strength of the magnetic field. And what that means is that when we put the bracelet on the wrist, um, we compress the spring. When your fingers move, the wrist or the carpal tunnel moves up and down. That pushes the magnet and the spring so that the distance between the magnet and the whole sensor will change depending on how much you move your finger. And that's what we're detecting in order to be able to recognize which finger is it that I moved and um, how far have I moved it? Oh, and turning to the question about the noise, that's also a very good question because with any sensor, noise is a, a huge issue. Uh, basically can ruin um, what is originally a very um, sound device. So with our approach, uh, we basically used machine learning and that can, I guess, automatically in a sense, just filter out the noise and just really focus on the peaks and the troughs and the, the main features of each signal. And because our uh, magnets and our whole sensors are quite sensitive, it means that even really small movements, uh, so partial finger movements where your finger doesn't go all the way down, they can still be detected quite accurately. Um, so that's one of the main uh, selling points of our approach. Fantastic. That that really is very ingenious because when you when you think about and you know listeners, if you're looking, if you look down at your your, your wrist, the palm, and you move your fingers just individually, you, you'll see those little tendons move. And uh, very much like when you um, hit a piano key, and then the hammer hits the string, and the string vibrates. Uh, there is there is basically there's a resonance that goes along with those particular tendons. So. Uh, this is that's very good to help give our listeners a visual of of what's going on there, because a lot of people probably never even thought about that. That yeah, my finger moves, but but what moves it? You know, I know my muscles move it, but the, you know the tendons are the the ropes, and so to be able to pick up that that frequency that change um, is ingenious to be able to do that. And I think that that's a it's a fantastic idea. We were talking earlier before the recording the podcast that. Uh, this can, we can use this for other people, such as people with rheumatoid arthritis or osteoarthritis who have basic finger deformities, but still have the gross movement in the tendons. And so this would be fantastic for those folks because it gives them the independence to use their computer and, and communicate with people, emails, Facebook, whatever, so that they can stay 
in the world, so to speak, without feeling like I can't work a keyboard. I'm, you know, I'm a hermit. I'm not going to be able to, you know, do anything or interact with people again. So I think that that's a, a beautiful use for this particular application. When you started to take a look at the sensors, you had mentioned about, you know, getting conical spring, uh, making sure that it's smaller so it's more compact. Now, in the actual bracelet itself, there's a, a, a black square that we we see. Did you have did you have trouble initially trying to see how small can we get this, but yet keep everything in it that we need? Was that a challenge as well, or was that pretty basic? That was certainly a challenge, and you can see, like you said on the photo, that black box that basically is where we keep the um, microcontroller board um, so that we can actually collect all those signals as they are received. Um, it was a challenge because traditionally um, we would use things like Arduino with um, these sensors, um, but of course Arduino is quite big and definitely not wearable. So we decided to go with a Teensy board to start off with, um, but the problem was that the wiring didn't really match up and it wasn't um, that easy to keep so it wasn't wireless. There was no Bluetooth capability. You had to keep it plugged into a computer through USB. And that was very good for testing, but it wasn't wearable. So we moved on to using a separate board. I think it was the Adafruit Feather uh, NRF board. And that does have a Bluetooth chip in it. So that means that we can achieve um, full wireless connection and make this a real wearable device. But at the moment, that board still is uh, quite big and that's why we have that box in place to keep it um, connected to the wrist. Um, in the future we'll try to experiment with this and see if we can uh, condense the connections and make it a bit smaller and that's definitely an important consideration because you don't want to walk around with a, a giant black box on your wrist. <laughs> yeah I mean we as we move further into the world of wearables uh, I think the market demand is going to be make it look like I don't have it you know, so that, you know, nobody knows it, it could look like a regular wristwatch and they wouldn't even know that, that they have it. So um, I think it's not a real picky market now, but I think the market's going to be more picky as the years go on, as the technology gets better. People don't want it to look like anything medical or anything technical. They just want it to look like a shirt or like a, a watch. The another question I have is. What was what time frame are we looking at from the time you sat in that classroom? And you heard about your professor sensors to the time you actually came up with the prototype that works. What are we talking about? Several months, a year, a year and a half? How, how long did it take for you to get to that point? Good question. And this one really takes me back to the early stages of 2020 when the pandemic first broke out. And yeah, there was a lot of uncertainty around, around that time. Uh, I guess I did approach Anusha very early in 2020 and we discussed this project. Um, uh, in January, and then I started working on it um, around that time, uh, perhaps a bit later when the semester started, so around March, I would say. Um, the first stages, I guess we progressed um, at a decent pace, although it was quite slow because we couldn't physically go into the lab all the time because of lockdowns here in Sydney. Um, but we did end up, I guess, coming up with our first prototypes throughout the first half of 2020, and definitely in the second half of the year, we started getting things working. So maybe July, August is when we started to see, oh, these sensors actually are able to detect um, quite reliably signals from the carbon tunnel. And we were able to start fabricating a prototype that we could use for our user studies, which we probably commenced around September, October, that kind of timeframe. 
So mm. all in all, it took us several months. Um, but yeah, within the end of the year, we were able to get this working. That's fast. I mean, you know, to those of you on the team, it probably seemed like an eternity because of, you know, this doesn't work. Try this. This That doesn't work. Try that. That works. Okay, what about that? So you know, all of those little stops and starts you had probably made it seem like nine years, but in nine months is is really not that long of a time, especially when you're looking at multiple um, components. I mean, you're, you're looking at, okay, what kind of springs do we use? Um, you had an idea of the sensors. And another question I've got for you with regards to all these things you need to bring together in that nine months, where did you find, where did you get the AI, the, the, the whole artificial intelligence component that you could sit back and say, okay, here's some data that we can use along with machine learning to, to give us this kind of accuracy that, that, you know, they move their, they move their index finger. And we, we can pick that up now that they're consistently moving their index finger or they're moving two fingers at once. So where where did that fit in on this nine month time frame? And how did you go about getting that information? That's a great question as well. Um, I think it probably came along towards the end of that time frame um, as we were using those um, user studies to get real data from um, users we realized that we need to make this quite an efficient process so that we're not sitting there manually analyzing things. We want to make this fast and we want to make it automated. So the technique that we used, um, we used a couple of libraries. We had um, TSFresh, which is a feature extraction Python library. Um, we also had Weka, which is, I think, developed by researchers in New Zealand, which basically allows you to run multiple machine learning models on um, data and sort of compare which ones give you the best accuracy, the best results. Um, and of course, we had really talented uh, individuals in our team. Um, so Nisal Munika, he helped me a lot with the um, AI part. Also, Kithmini Harath, who really helped me with um, pre-processing the data and working out how do we get this AI to work in real time. Um, and I think also the pre-processing data stage also took a bit of time because we need to kind of clean up the windows. Um, if something's going to work in real time, we need to make sure that we can identify when does the user start moving their finger and when does they when do they stop? Because with the controlled experiment, a user study, the experimenter can press a button and say, okay, this is when you start moving, this is when you stop. Whereas for real life, there's no such um, indications. So that also came in, I think, around the end of that time frame, we started to say, let's see if we can get this working in real time as well. Spectrum Ergonomics and Occupational Health Services provides a broad array of design and engineering professionals for your wearable project. We feature the following design specialties. Pattern making, digital textile, athletic wear, sensor, fashion, exoskeleton, robotics, and mechatronics. We also offer beta testing of your wearable in our private clinic. You choose the demographics and sample size, send us the sample, and we take care of the rest. For more information, go to www.spectrumergonomics.com for more information. Hey, if you're a startup wearable company, 
and you'd like to be able to get your information on this podcast, please contact me at my company website, www.spectrumergonomics.com. I'd love to be able to feature a little bit about what you're doing to let the world know about your wearable. Well, thanks for joining me at the intersection of fashion and technology. And may you wear it well.